1: they can't go on. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Wharton. This is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 21st of January, 2000. And 13. For newcomers, I always get this out of the way at the start. I'm sure most folk who listen regularly admit this part, but I go through, rather than pest you all, all the way through, uh, I remind the listeners that you bring me to you, so it's up to you to keep me going if you want to. You can go into com remember, and there's well over, I don't have many audios, there are now well over a thousand. To, for free download, where I go through the system you're born into. Your parents were two grandparents as well. And to show you that you're living through a big planned agenda, a script, if you like, of, to watch this, what they call, uh, they call it utopia, and times gone past, and today it's called the New World Order. And of course, it's not utopia for the general populations at all. It's a scientifically designed system, owned by the money men who set up all the utopias before it, by the way, that all failed miserably, except for themselves, who all, always to profit incredibly well from all failures but anyway i go through through the history of the foundations and organizations that formed all connected together mind you like a big club and uh, to, to to take over the world's resources and to bring in academia to get a good managerial class for the next uh each, for each generation to manage us all this is the age of world managers remember and were managed minutely from cradle to grave, basically, and it's to get more and more intense uh, very shortly. In fact, as we get more and more socialised, so help yourself to the to who's behind it, as I say in the audios and so on. And remember, two, you can get transcripts for prints up cuttingthroughtheMatrix.com in English. And if you go into Alan Watt SentientSentinel.eu, you can get transcripts in other languages. Remember, two, you can buy the books and discs at cuttingthroughtheMatrix.com. And that I go through in a a semi-humorous way, but also a factual way of how conology is called conology, the art of ruling the minds of millions of people, is an ancient art and how it's been used down through the ages. So you should get them to, from the US to Canada, remember you can use personal checks still. You can also use international postal money orders from your post office still. And you can uh, use PayPal or send cash, it's up to you. Across the world, Western Union MoneyGram and PayPal. And straight donations are awfully, awfully welcome as we go through uh, hyperinflation or, or quantitative easing as they call it. But we're truly run by, as I say, experts who give us new terms all the time and the terms themselves become fixtures in our minds and, and take out a, a sometimes idea from an abstract and make it more concretized like austerity. Like it's something we've got to go through this whole thing of, of poverty. It's a better way of seeing poverty. Uh, Stereo sounds a bit nicer, doesn't it? But it means all of you have to go through this post-industrial, post-consumerist era and go into poverty as you pay for uh, the future ones to go on into the future for their particular utopia, you see, which is uh, for special people with special genes, you know, better genes than everyone else. And... um, and they can go on with their children as well into the future, while you will be left behind eventually, and you'll die off because you're not breeding, or you'll be going sterile, one of the two. And uh, and so you're not then using up the resources of the special ones at the top. This is all planned out. It wasn't just science fiction that H.G. Wells wrote about. He was deeply involved with the Royal Institute of International Affairs and their left-wing societies. They're on both sides of everything. Uh, that the Fabian Society he wrote lots of non-fiction works on this too he was also picked out by uh, Thomas Huxley Sir Thomas Huxley to promote these ideas into the public once again get, get an abstract idea and get it out there and get it parted until it becomes from an abstract into some of concretized thing in, in the minds of people that's how we're run but it's very an easy technique actually if you have the money and the institutions and own all the press which of course the big boys do Back with more after this break. I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, talking about the big system you're born into. And folk don't realize it, that you're living through a script, really. Uh, very well planned script. Uh, many, many think tanks, hundreds and hundreds of think tanks work on the script all the time. Uh, they've already done this part, what they are going through now, probably about 50 years ago, and planned it all, every part of it. Because, you see, the, the big system that runs the world has been behind all the big revolutions done through history. And the plan in 10, 50, 100-year goals, they do the same thing at the United Nations, you'll notice, for certain topics, certain areas. And the, the Soviet system ran on the same principles of 5-year of plans, 10-year plans, 50-year plans, and so on. So it's quite easy to not just predict the future, you make it happen because you plan it that way, and you get all academia on board with ideas and topics that they'll start to espouse when the the time is right. And they do. And they all work together at the same time. And in a sense, it's predictive programming, in a sense. Uh, We hear the terms, and it's repeated to us many times by so-called experts on television generally and other ones pick it up on talk radio and so that you hear it all the time as in the newspapers. And again, once you're concretizing something, it's an idea. It's some think tank's idea that's very, very important to them because it will influence your behavior because it will alter the way you behave because you now think about something in a different way. That's how things are done. It's very simple. And those who've been in charge of governments down through history are perfectly aware of this science. They know it very, very well, very, very well. I mentioned before that even Plato talked about uh, culture and how all culture has to be authorized from the top, those already in power. That's thousands of years ago. And otherwise, something that came out of the grassroots out of nowhere without authorization could upset the whole plan in the upper cart for the future. So well, everything that happens is planned that way. And that's why the big, the big organizations, non-governmental organizations that push for different changes, uh, get uh, the incredible financing and incredible media coverage as well. When the time is right, they do it. And we see many examples of this today, from all the different gay rights and all the rest of it. as it's the most important thing on the planet. You understand, the world, the press, the media, is, is all one big club. One by a handful of people, who all know each other. And not believe in the same philosophy, and they actually have closer ties than that, in fact. And so you're on a planned agenda. They are also the ones that give you your school books and your and your university books as well. They give you what is authorized history that you're going to learn in, about in the future, about the past. And it'll conflict if you have a, a mind that remembers things, it'll conflict with what you remember. But that's the authorized version. That's how it's always been. Now One article came out recently, and it's by Zygmunt Brzezinski on advice to Obama, you see. And uh, he talks about, it's quite interesting the way it's phrased. It says, to be sure he's not a dictator, and Congress has a voice, so does the public. I wonder where that one is. But so do vested interests in foreign policy lobbies. Very important foreign policy lobbies. The congressional role in declaring war is especially important not when the United States is the victim of an attack. That's a congressional role in declaring war. It's especially important not when the U.S. is a victim of attack. That's where you had to be the victim of attack with the 9-11. Remember, we need a Pearl Harbor event, said the uh, the PNAC group. Remember? this is but when the United States is planning to wage a war abroad, that's when you've got to get approval by the Congress, according to them. Because America is a democracy, it's not a republic anymore, apparently, public support for presidential foreign policy decisions is essential. But no one in the government or outside it can match the president's authoritative voice when he speaks and then decisively acts for America. And so this is true even in the face of determined opposition. Now listen to this part. It's quite interesting the way it's worded. Even when some lobbies, they're always lobbying, uh, and those are the most powerful ones, you all know who they are in, in Washington. Even when some lobbies succeed in gaining congressional support for their particular foreign clients foreign clients, right? In defiance of the president, for instance, many congressional signatories still quietly convey to the White House their readiness to support the president if he stands firm for what they call the national interest. That's what they go to war for, too, the national interest. And a president who is willing to do so publicly while skillfully cultivating friends and allies in Capitol Hill can then establish such intimidating credibility that it's politically unwise to confront him. I think it's on when you scroll down, and I'll put all these links up that I'll mention tonight on CuttingThroughTheMedia.com at the end of the broadcast, but it talks about, again, more foreign policy and so on. And it says, for example, on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, the unfortunate fact is that under the last three presidents, U.S. policy has been either sincere but gutless or simply cynical. The recent Palestinian statehood vote in the United Nations, in which the United States, despite its intense efforts, obtained the support of only eight other states out of a total of 188 voting, marks the nadir of the dramatically declined global respect for the U.S. capability to cope with an issue that is morally troubling today and, in the long run, explosive. It dramatizes the consequences for the United States of declined by partnership in foreign Affairs and of the increased influence of lobbies. And it's true, the lobbies run uh, Washington, but they're not just lobbies, they're awfully well, they are fall from the big foundations and so on. Thus, undermining the, the need or underlining the need for assertive certain presidential leadership in foreign policy and national security. So, in other words, the US, of course, voted no to giving anything to Palestine because of the lobby groups that are awfully power from the states. And never, everyone knows it in the world. And so he gives a bit of advice to Obama and so on. Now, another article here is important because you don't understand what declarations are. Declarations, supposedly, are are, are really authoritative legal uh, announcements which have legal effects. And when, the annu- when presidents especially and and. and um, uh, prime Ministers announce something to the general public that sounds a bit vague to them. There's a reason for it being vague. It's because generally the general public wouldn't like it if they understood it. But, for instance, FDR talked about the New Deal. The New Deal was taking over and directing away from what was called the Constitution of the United States. That's why they used the term the New Deal. The old one was the was Constitution of the Bill of Rights, for those who don't understand it. And... It swayed off the U.S. into a different role completely. And this article here is kind of similar. It says, as so Obama supposedly said, and mind you, who, who knows who wrote the speech from? Probably his master. But it says, declaring our journey is not complete. Barack Obama took the oath of office for his second term before a crowd of hundreds of thousands. So our journey is not complete. It doesn't define who we are to be our. And it's not complete. So what mission was this? What mission was it? And this is in Monday, urged the nation to set up an unwavering course towards prosperity and freedom. Well, they said this is the same, this is the same term. They use: prosperity and freedom, partnership for NAFTA, and so on. And they've used the same terms in Britain as they go down the tubes. And protect a social safety net that has sheltered the poor, elderly, and the needy. The biggest safety net that came was to bail out the big bankers at the top. And after that, the military-industrial complex—that's called the wars going on. That's that's what's where the cash goes. He says our country cannot succeed when uh, shrinking. Very few do very well. He says uh, a, a growing, a, a growing uh, many barely make it. He says Obama said in a brief 80-minute address. We believe that America's prosperity must rest upon the broad shoulders of a rising middle class. under which one. It must be the technocrats they you know, the new world managers, because nobody else is rising. Echoing his calls from the presidential campaign that catapulted him to re-election. He, he then declared a, a, decade, a decade of war is ending. Well, it's not really... See, the war is continuous. It's like Orwell's 1984. So it's not meant to end. It's, to, it's continuous. And when it's not getting hammered with physical weaponry, on somebody else is either getting hammered with physical weaponry or psychological weaponry on you back home because you see there's a mission at home and it's not finished yet he says The, the, the journey's not complete you see now it's interesting too because he goes to say, in an era of looming budget, Kurtz Obama said the nation has a commitment to costly programmes such as Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security. Those things do not sap our initiative, they strengthen us. Well that's the same double speak that Britain was told to use twenty years ago. Yeah. And sandwiched between the bruised presidential campaign and continuing fiscal fights, Monday's inaugural celebrations marked a brief respite from the partisan gridlock that's consumed the past two years. That's all to show folks. And, you see, these scripts are often important, but that that part's important. Our journey is not complete. Now, a journey has to have a start. Someone must start it and set out an agenda, you see. We're going from here to there. That's the goal. And that's a very important thing to realize. Something's been said here again, just like Bush Sr. when he said the new world order is coming into view. It's very important to understand that. Big, big, big changes, massive changes are coming very quickly. And by the way, uh, they've already agreed to go to war across uh, North Africa uh, 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 after the finish just with the Middle East itself. Uh, That's already been agreed. It was agreed in Bush, uh, Bush Jr.'s term. And I'll, I'll touch on that tonight as well. So it's to be continuous war. Understand too, at home, under the warfare technique, we need to forms of martial law. And so you give up all your rights so that you can create massive social change from the domestic people at home, as opposed to those abroad that you're fighting. And Carl Quigley went through that awfully well, that the changes. You get more done in five years of war with the new laws that the government runs through than 50 years of propaganda and persuasion. Now, I'll touch on another article on the same topic when I come back after these messages. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix talking about the future the present's always tied to the future because the present, the present was planned a long time ago, and the future is already planned uh, at the present as well. It really is planned. All the wars definitely are. Bank crashes are years ahead of when it happens. All these things are known long in advance and definitely planned as well. Because it's time for austerity. You understand where you become austere paying uh, for the the big salaries for the banks. Anyway, this article, too, is from the Foreign Affairs, and um, it talks about the crisis of democracy. It was identified in the 1970s and never really went away. It just papered over with temporary solutions and obscured by a series of lucky breaks. I don't know what lucky breaks were. It was all going into globalization, wasn't it? Today the problems have mounted, yet American democracy is more dysfunctional than ever, and it's fewer levers to pull in a globalized economy. That's because the boys who ruled the U.S. already planned the globalized system, and it's put everything off to China later on. And that's already happened, right? So it's this time the pessimists might be right, it says. And it goes through, uh, Obama's re-election and so on and so on. And then it goes through this usual who of pretending to know about economics and how things would get better and, and all that. But when you scroll down this article, and I'll put this up tonight too, it says in 1980, the United States gross government debt, government debt, gross government debt was 42% of its GDP. It is now 107%. Says that phrase might sound familiar, but, but in the mid-1970s, growth was stagnating and inflation skyrocketing across the West. Vietnam Watergate had undermined faith in political institutions and leaders and newly empowered social activists were challenging establishments. Well, they have been doing it since they came into the country long before that. This is a 1975 report from the Trilateral Commission entitled The Crisis of Democracy. Distinguished scholars from the U.S., Europe, and Japan argued that the democratic governments of the industrial world had simply lost their ability to function, overwhelmed by the problems they confronted. Remember, the Trilateral Commission was also created with the Rockefeller Foundation and the Council on Foreign Relations, a role for international affairs, to bring in world governments and to bring in, eventually, a, a world parliament system. So they, they say what they, they've always said, that's our mantra, it's not going to work, we need a global system. So I'll put this link up tonight too, as we go through a new crisis of democracy, whatever this democracy is. I've never known a static meaning for democracy in my lifetime, it keeps changing. And also, out now too, is the CIA's free reign on targeted killing. Pakistan is exempted from the agency's drone playbook. They call it the playbook, all they're targeting, the ones wanting want to kill a new CIA manual that limits the agency's ability to use drones and create strict guidelines for targeting killings is being finalized. Pakistan was exempted from these restrictions in a compromise between the CIA, the State Department and the Pentagon. The Washington Post has revealed that John Brennan, the counterterrorism advisor nominated by President Obama to be the next head of the CIA, has agreed to temporarily exempt the spy agency from the new manual's guidelines, which attempts to codify the use of drones to kill al-Qaeda members, which is generally the general public, it seems, and children, other terrorist organizations and even U.S. citizens. The manual sets out stricter standards and rigid rules for the use of U.S. drones. Some of the guidelines include requirements for White House to approval, approve drone strikes and involvement of multiple agencies, such as the State Department, in adding new names to kill lists. Amazing, you got killed, this, eh, in this advanced, uh, was democracy, they call it. Yeah? However, none of these stringent rules applies to US drone attacks in Pakistan, which started under President George W. Bush. Well, nothing's really changed, actually, because Obama is, in fact, Rumsfeld said that a few years ago. He slapped them on the back, Obama, when he got in the last time, and, and th- congratulated him for carrying on the same, the same thing as the PNAC group that, uh, Rumsfeld was in, the same agenda. Now, I've mentioned before how television is your, your programmer. It gives you predictive programming what's to come through fiction primarily. And it's done in many, many ways. It can be done through comedy as well. Uh, often the sexual stuff is p- first put on comedy, and then you start howling at it, and then they start getting into plays or, or, or dramas, and you don't, you, you don't react the way you would have uh, before you were indoctrinated and laughed at yourselves being degraded. But they also do social changes, too. Now, Star Trek, I've mentioned this many times before, the whole series was worked out not just with NASA, but with RAND Corporation, it says here. Uh, and it was predictive programming. And it talks about uh, one of the the first captains that they had. I think it was in the first series or first show. It was called Jeffrey Hunter. He played Captain Christopher Pike in the Star Trek pilot, The Cage. And he talked about some... Uh, that the RAND Corporation, people from the RAND Corporation also were involved in this. Now the RAND Corporation <laughs> is classified as a non-profit sort of charitable thing that works for governments and all areas of projects. They were the guys also who, who ran uh, the, the game theory system that every American and Canadian and British Britain and all the Europeans in their computers simulating games on how you'd react in certain situations and it's all run by statistics. And the RAND Corporation also was employed by Obama, because even though they're, they're tax-free, they charge millions to be consulted. And Obama also, also used them for his uh, health care package. He asked what's the best system to emulate, and, the, and RAND came back with the British system, which is going down the tubes, as you well know. So that's Obamacare. It's really to get massive abortion and, and things like that, and bring the population down, and mandatory inoculations. But anyway, I'll go through some of this article when I come back from this break.
0: You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
1: Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix, talking about predictive programming and how it works. As I say, you get familiarized with the idea. If it's in a fictional form, you'll you'll watch the movie or the series or whatever, and gradually you'll you'll start to say, yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess so. And then when it happens in reality, you're all ready for the big changes to come. Now, when the Star Trek Trek series came out, it was just before the massive push was, was for multiculturalism was going on. And then during it, it was on. The big push was on. And you saw this ship. You know, it's, it's very much like this in the U.S. God bless us on this enterprise. You know, that's why they called the ship the Enterprise as well. And those that set up the U.S. had a particular enterprise in mind, supposedly, or it certainly was taken over by others uh, later on. But the idea was that uh, they went in to represent Earth, it was a, which had a unified government. The whole it was a governmental, a world government system on Earth at the time, and the ship went on supposedly to get peaceful trade and so on throughout the galaxy, all the different groups they'd meet, which represented different ethnic groups with beliefs and behaviors and looks and all the rest of it, the same as multiculturalism would do. And those who would adapt and join the world system this, this global Earth system uh, would, were the good guys. They could trade and all the rest of it, and travel. But the bad guys uh, that wouldn't go into this world system were always uh, easily depicted as the an awful bad guys with or horrible habits and terrible cultures and awfully barbaric. And uh, and that's really how the world eventually has been run since, if you understand the massive multiculturalism. And how you must accept all things that which you may, maybe disapprove of even. And also you must uh, um, accept free trade and a world government. Now it's all part of the whole engineering of a generation to accept these things. So this article goes through it talking about that, that, that uh, the RAND Corporation is also involved. Gene Roddenberry was also a member of NASA, remember. He sat on the board of NASA. And uh, but it says here that uh, they took the Rand Corporation's projection of things to come and, and also worked on that as well And then it goes on to talk about the predictive programming So I'll put this link up tonight too It's quite interesting about the different uh, characters that were involved For the social changes and so on Now this is a good article here too People don't realize that multiculturalism um, Who pushed it in every country so one group pushed it in every country. Or why they pushed it in every country. And some people say, well, it was based on the old British Commonwealth idea. And, and it, it wasn't really. The Commonwealth idea was simply that Britain was already conquered by the people who ran the big banks in London. And it was their idea to form the Cecil Rhodes Foundation and Rothschilds, who was in, in with Cecil Rhodes Foundation, and couple it with the Milner Group, Lord Alfred Milner, who eventually became director of umpteen different banks, including Barclays, and and create the Royal Institute of International Affairs, using Britain as an embryo for to be built on for a world empire government, not based in England, by the way. And they passed on uh, the the cost of it all eventually, uh, or most of the cost, to the U.S. And that's why the U.S. has been the policeman of the world since, and along that star trek scenario they 're hammering all the bad guys, the bad guys that you 're allowed to hear called nasty names and all the propaganda movies that the Pentagon funds out for funds about them and wars and so on and and all that kind of stuff but anyway here 's an article to do with the so called you understand the multiculturalism that they, they pushed was not for assimilation in fact, the ones who pushed it are, are actually are totally against assimilation. But um, they want people to have, they told telling them to keep their own cultures, and you end up with this morass of no culture at all. And even the domestic culture gets destroyed and don't know what it is anymore. That was all part of the strategy towards global governance, you see, by those who run it. Anyway, it says the UK is in a generational struggle against terror. Also, this is another one, too. But I should actually say it's this, this other one. <laughs> this one here I'll put in first. It says, invasion of the foreign super cops in Britain. Uh, the p- prime minister wants to hire US crime busters to take over British police. This is part of uh, the international police force now. It says former army officers will be recruited as police superintendents and the changes rip up the tradition of only British citizens serving in the police. So they're bringing the top ones in from all over the world, apparently. Foreign crime busters such as the US Supercop Bill Bratton will be given a chance to take over British police forces under new radical new plans to be unveiled by Home Secretary Theresa May and former army officers will be recruited as police superintendents in an attempt to end the closed-shop police culture blamed for bungled investigations and corruption. The changes set to be fiercely opposed by police chiefs rip up the centuries-old tradition of only British citizens serving in the police. Now, the the one on immigration and multiculturalism, a mother who dared to tell the truth about immigration on the BBC, and um, says here, when she arrived at the Lincoln drill hall for the BBC One's question time last Thursday, Rachel Boole took a seat towards the back of the audience, never imagining that she would speak during the live television debates. I mean, everything's produced uh, on TV, especially the BBC, and it's also supposed to be very proper, uh, and you keep away from nasty subjects, you know, taboo subjects, which everybody's taught are taboo, you see. this is that first 35-year-old Mrs. Boole listening quietly to the Panelists was discussing issues such as the future of the high street in London and the scandal of supermarket burgers contaminated with horse meat, the usual the trivia stuff that they put out there. But when the topic shifted to immigration in her family's hometown, which is Boston and Lincolnshire, she found she could remain silent no longer. After hearing Cambridge University professor Mary Baird eerily dismissing claims that migrant workers were overwhelming the market tongue, office manager Mrs. Bull almost leapt from her seat, waving her hand frantically until she caught the attention of presenter David Dimbleby. She says, Boston is at breaking point. All the locals can't cope anymore, she said, her voice trembling with emotion and outrage. You go down to Boston High Street and it's just like you're in a foreign country. It's got to stop the services are at breaking points. And it's true, you know, people years ago paid for all these services in the National Health Service, and and now it's bust, because they've got to take on everyone who comes in for operations or healthcare and so on. I mean, never mind that, their their pension plan's all been spent as well on bringing more in and and, and retraining them, and then they'll, they'll, they'll end up leaving the country or whatever. But the fact is, it's been advertising for 50 years. It's the easiest place to get on welfare and so on openly when she finally finished speaking there was a moment silenced in rapturous applause as in less than a minute this ordinary working mother had given a snapshot picture of a town at its end of its tether and voiced the fears of huge swaths of the population after the show had finished audience members were still fetting mrs bull like a heroine shaking her hand and congratulating her for daring to speak out about the lasting impact of mass immigration since then, Mrs. Bull, who was born and brought up in Lancashire and lives with her marine engineer husband and 10-year-old son, has had time to reflect on her impromptu television appearance. She, while she's rather overwhelmed by the attention her impassioned outpouring has attracted, she has no regrets. Well, people are terrified to say what's obvious, because everyone knows it's taboo to say what's now mandatory. And I've read the articles before uh, that they've talked about destroying the British culture. See, all cultures eventually have to be destroyed. Same in the U.S. So, I mean, you think about all the debate about the gun control. They've lost all their rights since 2001. And they've had, they've had all the... We're getting snooped on like you wouldn't believe. Everything. Uh, they're getting almost raped at the airports, for God's sake. Uh, everything's changed. Everything's changed. And, and now it's to change further with Obama's little speech there. There's more to do. And... It's bad enough in Britain, it says illegal immigrants are now paying criminal gangs £1,500 a time to smuggle them out of Britain. This is the foreign nationals, many of whom sneaked into the UK undetected in the first place, are put in the back of trucks and transported to France. This is by avoiding contact with authorities who can travel on a European destination of their choice, rather than risk being sent back to their homelands thousands of miles away. See, they come in through... Uh, Greece or whatever country they come into and once they're on there accepted as European they can go anywhere in Europe and it, mostly they head to Britain because it's the easiest way to, there's no questions asked so there's this fear that foreign criminals on the run from the police are fleeing this way and then also uh, there's another article about um, <laughs> it's called and, and Dublin, I'll be this up tonight it's from Dublin and it's um, as a vigil, actually a pro-life virgil virg- they had, because there's all this hype about them not joining in the mass, you know, killing your baby scheme that the UN's pushed for years. And it's these crowds demonstrating in Dublin uh, to highlight their opposition to the abortion law changes. And there's over 25,000 have attended a vigil for life event to, to say that no, we're not all on board with it. And perhaps that's against the constitution there, you know. But again, too, we're all getting told, so your, your old laws are gone. Your laws are gone, right? And we're accepting that as well. We are. It's not just gun rights. Everything is gone. This is a new world order. Order, you know? And this article, too, Bill Gates' interview, I said, I've got no use for money. This is God's work, he says. Now, the last time I heard that, it was was at Bernanke. It said at the Federal Reserve, I'm doing God's work. And one asked him, what are you talking about? During an, an inquiry, what, what, what God is this? You know, here's Bill Gates uh, with the mandate to vaccinate people across the planet with the, the, the polio vaccines and all the rest of it. He also said too, this will bring down the population. And we, we know that the polio vaccine already has condemned generations to cancers and probably sterility too. You've got to start putting things together when they make these, these, these little comments. This is God's work. Now, any member of the public saying that would be classified as a nutcase or somebody with a messianic complex. But not with these guys. This is a, an in-house term that they use with each other. And you better look into it yourselves and find out what they're talking about. And talk about vaccinations and how they've, they also said a long time ago, the biggest threat to the world, the United Nations, they said, was the individual. They want the collective society, you know, the ones who all agree with the PC stuff. And they must also get rid of leaders. Leaders now, remember, don't go along with the herd, that's why the herd follows them. So you've got to get those who have potential leadership abilities and cripple them when they're at school. And they come up with uh, autism and, and so on, and... Uh, and then classifications such as ADHD, etc. And this is, this is a new study, but it simply confirms all the other studies I've done before. They know all this stuff. It says, boys on ADHD medication are growing more slowly, a stunting their growth. Well, about 10 years ago, they said it was stunting their brains, which is only part of the rest of their body. So it's not like they don't know what they're doing. It's having the desired effect. They, they won't grow up to be leaders. Don't worry about that. They're not going to be leaders. So Sydney, uh, the University of Sydney has found that adolescent boys treated for ADHD are growing more slowly during puberty. And they find that more than three years on ADHD medication can stunt their development. And it can do it permanently, by the way. They find that with the brain, too. So I'll put this link up tonight as well. And another little one, too, it's a bit off the, the topic but you ever thought that ballet was a, 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 a dangerous occupation? But uh, and apparently it is. And, and in Russia it's pretty dangerous because they can have little tiffs between the top dancers, the guys, that is, you know, little tiffs. I'll put this one up tonight about uh, uh, the dangers in, in ballet dancers dancing today. Pooh, it's quite a tiff. Also tonight too I'll put up Farmers Are Fighting for a Fair Go. On the Thompson and Peter Spencer one in Australia, there are another a couple that went to Australia to farm, and because all the laws now have changed everything, uh, they just can't get the farm off the ground because of bureaucracies and changes in the laws. And I'll put that up tonight too for those that want to have a wee peek at it. And also tonight, this one here about Goldman. And I mentioned a few years ago the Goldman. Sachs and the rest of them, right after the bank crash, in fact, uh, they found out that they're also putting up, because I mentioned before, five agribusinesses, uh, run the world's food supply. And see, at one time when you were national countries, and you aren't national anymore. Uh, you're used as national ones for war and that, but you're not national anymore. But you're, 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 that you had to make sure that enough grain and all the rice and food was kept in your country for your own population to keep the prices low and convenient and, and affordable. Now they're going outside, as you know, because we're global. So they can sell all this stuff off and, uh, for the highest bidder. So we went into derivatives now, and they've got the food up, all your world's food supply up on the big global casino there. The guys own it all, and they've taken it over and it says Goldman bankers are getting rich betting, betting on food prices as millions starve. And the bank is criticized for making 250 million dollars, pounds, sorry, that is 250 million pounds at a destructive spikes in global food markets. And, um, I'll put that up tonight too. It says Goldman Sachs made more than a quarter of a billion pounds last year by speculating on food staples, reigniting the controversy over banks profiting from the global food crisis. Well of course they are. They they, they run the world, the banks. Goldman Sachs isn't everything. In every country. In every politics, every politician it's in everything. Just less than a week after the Bank of England Governor Mervyn King slapped Goldman Sachs on the risk for attempting to save as UK employees millions of pounds in tax by delaying bonus payments, the investment bank faces fresh accusations as contributing to rising food prices. This is made 40 million pounds or dollars in 2012 from investing its clients' money in a range of soft commodities from wheat and maize to coffee and sugar. So if you wonder where the prices are and all, are going up and all these things. According to an analysis for the independent by the world development movements. This contributed to the 68% jump in profits for 2012. Goldman announced last week allowing it to push up the average pay and bonus package of its bankers to £250,000. Not bad, eh? You understand too, there's only a handful of people own all the top corporations and banks in the world. And they have shares in each other's companies. In other words, a handful of people own pretty well everything. You've got, you've got the appearance sometimes of competition, but there is no competition. It's just meant for appearances sake. And also too, I'll put up this one, but arthritis. Now, we always go through new normals and, um, as we're upgraded into the big system. Uh, you have lots of uh, problems now with young people getting old age diseases. And this one is, I thought arthritis only hit the elderly. My girl had it at two years old. It's become a new normal now because they snap so many inoculations into them before they could even say da mama. Some of them never recover from inoculations, end up with autism, as you know. Now, there's some music coming in. I'll be back with more after this break. and back. We're cutting through the Matrix, and I'll go now to uh, the caller. There's, there's Tom from Wisconsin hanging on the line there. Are you there, Tom?
0: Yeah, I'm here, Alan. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, excellent, excellent. I just wanted to let you know that you're doing a great job, um, as usual, and, um, yeah. well, I mean, there's not a whole lot that can be said. I mean, what we're really doing is we're just trying to cover all the bases before all of that... Connection that we have now with one another disappears into the, into the darkness mm-hmm. of the new dark age. Whenever that comes, yeah. but um, it, it, a lot of it is very much like when dealing with the general public who is really unaware of most of these things that we talk about on, on your show and on other shows like this. Yeah, it, it is. It is the parable of the Matrix, where where they will they will fight to the death, to their death, to defend it.
1: Even if it is their data, it's very mm-hmm. yeah and and, and it 's going to change very quickly too. I mean you can feel it it 's in the air actually you can, you can feel it the, the big big change is coming on it doesn 't matter how unhappy people are about different things, different issues they 've all become taboo issues because the government 's got a different take on everything, and we 're supposed to ad, adapt to their take and be politically correct. Uh, which defies logic, and it's telling you to be technically become insane to be politically correct, to go along with them. So uh, you've been denied to use your own reason and logic when you can see everything that's happening, and you know the why's. So they're going to get, come, get tough, get really tough shortly. I know that. Yeah, yeah. Let's
0: uh, there's definitely, definitely be a separation of the strong in the coming, uh, coming time.
1: Yes, that's,
0: that's very near.
1: Oh, it's definitely here. It's definitely coming near. Uh, and the, the fact that everyone's under surveillance, there is no free speech, really. You know. And years ago, I talked about the Pentagon having it was from their own website saying that they had virtual everybody's. We, we're in it. The virtual you is in their 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 their, their computers. And they do exercises on, on you as you update your, your personality every day, what you're into, what you're interested in. They update that into your, your avatar and then they, they put tests on it to see how you react in situations when government makes the next move and the, the next move and the next move. And literally, I mean, and we think we're free. We call this democracy. You know, now this is not democracy. That uh, this is we're we're getting treated like robots, basically, with no privacy on any accounts whatsoever. This this is what they've been after for a long, long time. Uh, Aldous Huxley talked about it, and um, many others did too. Back in the 1930s, they knew they we were going to bring in this system.
0: Well, Alan, Alan, they want people docile and domesticated, but they will march into the pits. Yeah. And and the, and thank their the killers for killing them. Yes, that's what they want. And the good old boys that I work with, mm-hmm. they are they are one step away from that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So domesticated. Even, even though they've got all their guns and all that, mm-hmm. it doesn't. It's like a state of mind that even with their guns they don't have, which is what concerns me about this whole Second Amendment thing. Is how, how domesticated are, are the American men? How, how domesticated are they really? Even the ones in their yeah. 40s and 50s, you know?
1: Oh, absolutely. They're absolutely domesticated. Uh, they've been conditioned to do be so with the very good scientific indoctrination. Perpetual, twos from every day you get your downloads from television and they adapt to the changes that's, that's the whole point people are the greatest adapters of all Darwin talked about that too so they use your adaptation ability as they change your societies bit by bit by bit until you're you're facing a 180 degrees and they don't notice it they still think you wave that flag and we're still some kind of uh, old America that's all gone it's already gone and they did nothing about it because they weren't aware it was happening or did nothing then but thanks for calling from Hamish and myself from Ontario, Canada. It's good night to me. A god of your gods, go with you.